0: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of QA with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's sponsor is BookNix. BookNix is a teacher facilitated interactive subscription box and online book club for middle grade readers. I have two good middle grade readers, and I think this is like a godsend, so I hope you do too. Their titles are selected to widen horizons, teach critical thinking skills, and expose young readers to life lessons in engaging, safe, and accessible ways. Their curated collection aims to avoid the canon of classics that kids would usually encounter as part of their school curriculum. A selection of books for different reading and developmental levels is provided each month, and you should definitely go check it out, especially in this era of distance learning. The code for you guys is ZIBBY20, Z-I-B-B-Y 20, which is all capitals, Z-I-B-B-Y 20, will get you 20% off plus a $5 donation to Dolly Parton's Imagination Library for every new subscription using the discount code at booknix.com. So go to booknix.com, put in the code ZIBI20, get your middle grade uh, subscription box, and it'll be fantastic. Thank you, Bookniks, for sponsoring. I hosted a book club for Hey Mama, which is an organization for women CEOs and entrepreneurs and other just badass moms. Anyway, Nefertiti Austin wrote a book called Motherhood So White. It's a memoir about adopting her son and so much. Else, And I got to interview her for the book club, which was really fun. And here's a little more about Nefertiti. Nefertiti writes about the erasure of diverse voices in motherhood. Her work around this topic has been shortlisted for literary awards and appeared in The Huff Post, Mother, The Establishment, Mater Mia, Essence.com, Adoptive Families Magazine, PBS, and PBS Parents. She was the subject of an article on race and adoption in The Atlantic and appeared on HuffPost Live and One Bad Mother, where she shared her journey to adoption as a single black woman. Nefertiti's expertise stems from firsthand experience and degrees in U.S. history and African American studies. Nefertiti is a former certified PS MAP trainer, where she co-led classes for participants wanting to attain a license to foster and/or adopt children from foster care systems. An alumni of Breadloaf Writers Conference and VONA, her first two novels, Eternity and Abandon, helped usher in the Black romance genre in the mid-1990s. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to all of you and thanks for listening to our little conversation here. And welcome Nefertiti. And thanks to everybody for having us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I feel like you use so many nicknames in your book. Like you used to be called Tina and then you were Nef oh, and whatever, <laughs> but I'll use your whole name because we just met. So it's okay. Okay. All
1: right. That's fine. <laughs> it's an
0: evolution, you know how this goes. So. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. And thanks to the Few of you who are here tonight and watching and everything. So that's great. <laughs> so, Nefertiti, for the people who don't know, can you please tell everybody what your book is about and what inspired you to write this memoir?
1: All right. So, again, I'm Nefertiti Austin and I wrote a memoir, Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America. And I started writing because when I was ready to be a mom, I knew I wanted to adopt, I knew I wanted to be a mother. I knew I wanted to adopt a a black boy from the foster care system. And so I'm such a nerd. I love to read. And I was looking for books. And this is like the height of all the mommy wars. And I was quickly disappointed when I found that most of those books didn't include me. I was nowhere on the page. I was looking for, I mean, there's certainly lots of universalities within motherhood, but there are cultural nuances. And I was looking for myself. I couldn't find myself on the page and I began writing. And so like my early writings were really sort of like a rage against the machine, you know, rage against publishing, just racism within parenting and adoption. And over time, I really was able to kind of hone in on what it was I was really trying to say and basically what I'm wanting to say. And I hope the message is clear. And that is that we have so much power as mothers. And I would love for all moms, but especially white mothers who still have a large, the lion's share of the market, like in the parenting genre, to be open to alternate perspectives and experiences that are very crucial and critical to what's happening in the world. So that's that's the impetus for how I began writing about motherhood.
0: And you wrote about it so beautifully, how you <laughs> you you rolled August into the library and you were like, can I please have the books here on Black Parenting? And they were like, yeah, no, we, we've got nothing. And you like kept going. You're like, now I'm going to the big box bookstores. and Now I'm going to the independent bookstores. And you looked everywhere and there was there was just nothing. You couldn't find a thing. And I think you were just like flabbergasted by the lack of material that was already out there. And of course they say that's the best book to write. When you like look for it on the shelf, it's not there. You have to just go do it. <laughs>
1: And that's essentially what happened. I was, I was surprised. There were a couple of of oldies, like from the eighties and Rebecca Walker had a book out and like uh, one can one essay collection. And there was like one little chapter on adoption, but, but in the scheme of things though, it was just really very startling and surprising that in the 21st century that I could not find mom narratives about women
0: who look like me. But your book was so sort of multi-layered because you tackled so many topics. So it's not just that there weren't books about people that look like you. It was the fact that you, that in the, as you would say in the book, like in the black culture, adoption of somebody you didn't know is just like not done right? Like everybody was like, what do you mean? Nobody, no, you're not, you're adopting somebody you don't know because you obviously, as you wrote about so beautifully, you were basically, you were adopted by your grandparents who raised you and that that's very common, right? And it's less common to go into the foster care system and be like, you know what, I'm going to be an angel and I'm just going to adopt somebody. I'm going to foster care somebody. And that's what I'm doing. And you met with so much resistance. Tell me about that cultural sort of backlash you got when you even set your mind on doing this.
1: Yeah, well, the funny thing is I'm such a free spirit and every time my family expects me to, you know, go left, I go right. So I don't know why they were so surprised. But basically, culturally, we tend to take children. We know, we start, we look within. So we start with nieces and nephews and grandchildren. And if there aren't any children who are in need in those spaces, then often you see a lot of that within churches, within the neighborhood. And so it's really giving families an opportunity to maintain a unit, even if the parents maybe live down the street or maybe they're not blood related, but there is some type of connection. And so I didn't have that option within my family and because I wanted to adopt, I really had no choice but to go outside my family. And so the question I still get when I share that my children are adopted from black people, especially older black people, Do you know their people? That's always the first question. Do you know them? Do you know their people? Because somehow that makes it easier. People understand that, oh, okay, this is someone you knew. Okay, we understand that. And whenever I say, well, no, I didn't, I don't know their people. And I went the foster care route. I got quite a few double takes and largely it's because children in the foster care system are negatively stigmatized and they have a really, really bad reputation, especially in the press. And they're kind of written off as like, you know, the lowest of the low leftover children rejects. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And so I just ignored all of that and and did it anyway.
0: Amazing. (laughs) Tell me about your own family. So you grew up in a family in which your father ended up being. Well, you, Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background? Because there are a lot of different ways to go when you have parents who weren't there for you in one way or the another, which a lot of parents aren't able to be there for their kids, whether it's through drug addiction or incarceration or whatever else. But you can respond to that in a lot of ways. And you, one way is not necessarily that you want to double down and create an amazing home life for your kids. But one way is that way. So tell me about how you felt like your own personal experience influenced your decision, because I feel like there was so much of that in the book that was so important.
1: So my parents were very young when they married. And actually, I was born before they got married. And they were part of the Black Power movement in the 60s. So all that has happened in the last few months, and, you know, certainly over the years, but definitely, you know, Breonna Taylor, Mark Aubrey, and George Floyd. My my parents would have been in the street out front with Black Lives Matter. And so they were young and radical and like many people during the 60s and 70s, they took drugs and unfortunately they both had drug addictions and it, it splintered our family. My father went to the penitentiary, my mother went to rehab and even though she eventually Kicked her drug habit. Her lifestyle was very unstable. So my brother and I went back and forth between my grandparents and my mom. One summer we lived with my dad, and there was just a lot of back and forth. And finally, around I was nine, my brother and I officially went to live with grandparents. But they did not adopt us because, again, in the black community, there's no need to get adopted. We had a very informal arrangement. Our entire family abided by the the new a configuration which essentially meant that my grandparents were my parents and then my mother and father over time really became like siblings they didn't have a lot of authority in terms of you know where I went to school they couldn't really get me out of trouble if i got in trouble for doing things so it was just like okay instead of my grandparents raising three children they ended up raising five of us and so that was my orientation to you could raise a family and not have given birth to the children. But I didn't connect all of those dots until I was actually writing my memoir. And then it was sort of like, oh, okay, these seeds, this legacy had already been established in me. And when I was ready to become a mom, it was just sort of like all of this stuff came flooding forward for me. And it made sense to me to adopt.
0: And I feel like you had so much practice after taking care of your brother. I mean, you talk about in the book how you would like get up on a chair and reach down for the Cheerios. I know I mentioned this to you the other day, but that image is like seared in my mind. It's just so cute. Like you were just like your parents were passed out or whatever. And you were like, well, it's time for breakfast. (laughs) Somebody had to
1: do it. Oh, yeah. I
0: remember that well. Yeah, yeah. I thought there were so many other interesting things in your book. One thing was the cultural resistance to seeking therapy, yes. which I didn't even really realize. I mean, I hadn't really even thought about it particularly, but you were saying that when you went to seek therapy yourself and people in your family and whatever are saying like, don't tell your secrets to a white person. Like, don't no. do that. That's like, <laughs> no, no, no. So tell me, tell me a little more about that. Well, we still have a lot of resistance
1: to seeking mental health. And speaking of which, okay, I'm sure you can't miss Kanye West. I mean, he's all over the news with his craziness. And I don't mean it negatively, and I don't mean to offend by using the phrase craziness, but he definitely has a mental illness. And I don't know if he's bipolar or what his diagnosis is, but, you know, he's certainly living out loud a lot of what happens every single day. And in our community, our go to is, oh, that person needs to go to church. So then maybe you talk to the pastor and somehow the pastor is going to straighten you out, or oh, that person just needs to relax, or oh, they need, you know, we come up with all of these excuses, everything except for what we need, and that is an impartial person just to help us sort through our feelings. And there's so much trauma in our community. I mean, we certainly have survived enslavement and mass incarceration and segregation and all of these things that have happened and continue to happen. And it's a lot to carry. And I think that we pass it down and we pass down these feelings about getting help. And we are very distrustful of the penal system. We are distrustful of the medical System. I mean, and we have legitimate reasons to be weary of and distrustful of. And when it comes to our mental health, we are still very resistant about getting that type of help. And I think we're afraid that, A, if we tell white people our business, then it will give them more of a reason to mistreat us. And B, if we say some of the things we, we're feeling out loud, if we're feeling depressed, or if we're feeling stressed or tired, or those things, then it's real if we say it out loud so we, we hold it in or we overeat or we drink, you know, just as other people try to manage themselves instead of of seeking help. So it's, it's a huge problem now. And I really hope more of us will seek, you know, counseling. And so I was in law school, which I didn't finish. I didn't have any business being in law school, but I was there. And my mother was thinking of breaking up with her husband and coming to LA. And I just, I just felt like, you know, she's getting ready to ruin my world because she had been gone. And I was trying to figure out, you know, I wanted to be a writer, but I'm in law school because I had said, oh, I want to be a lawyer and I'm trying to honor what I said I would be and make my grandparents proud. And then my mother is going through her drama and she was going to bring it to me. And I just, I just needed someone to talk to about it. And I knew within my family I couldn't do it. And immediately my brother, and my aunt, you know, why would you do that to your mother? So then it became about her feelings instead of my own and what I was dealing with. And, you know, God bless my grandmother. She was in my corner and she was like, you have to do what you have to do. And I, I'm so grateful for that. And I'm a huge fan of
0: therapy. I think it's good stuff. I mean, truth be told, you could have written the whole book about your relationship with your own mother. Like that would have filled like that would have filled multiple books in and of itself. And I have feel like I have read books like that. <laughs> Coping with a narcissistic mother. I mean, you talked about, you know, when you, so you started writing novels, right? So you pivoted from law school, you started writing fiction. You also, you know, had a job. Now you have an adopted child. You'd like do a million things. And then yeah. your mom comes waltzing in as like, many moms that I perhaps know or have definitely read about would do and makes it all about her right and oh. you're like could I have one day just one day tell me tell me about that that scene that night and and the effect of sort of the world being about her and how that affects you as a child okay so which time are you talking about <laughs> my very first book signing
1: that one Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So my mentor was an assembly member at the time, and we were able to get the California African American History Museum, beautiful venue. And so, you know, I'm mid twenties. This is this is huge. I'm excited. And my grandfather flew my mom out; she lived in Houston at the time to, you know, come to this book signing. So I live. Uh, no, let's see. I wasn't living at home, so I must have gone to my grandparents' home and, you know, to say hi. And all of a sudden, my mother's like, you know, so you didn't want me to come. And it was just so bizarre, out of nowhere, as usual, she made everything about her. And I think I thought I was going to pick her up so she could ride with me. And I left, and I just drove myself. And when I got there, I had an amazing time. And, you know, you have to say a few words and thank people for coming And I had thanked everyone and I had gone to sit down and my mentor was like, "You didn't thank your mother. And I was like, Oh yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I had to go back up and thank her. And it was just, you know, it was one more thing. It was an afterthought for me because I always felt like, and I told her this, you show up for the good stuff for my cotillion, you know, for the book signing for graduations, that sort of thing. But just on a regular Tuesday or a Wednesday, like you're not there for just a regular mundane things that happen in my life. So I was very resentful for many, many years and we had a very cold relationship and it was, the ice was on my part because I was just like, I'm done. I just, I don't understand, you know, what, what is your point? And she was trying and really pushing for a relationship and I wasn't interested. And it took me probably six years really after therapy before I kind of really got like, no, for real, she's your sister. And you don't have to have, like, this close relationship with her. Like, it's okay. And then I was able to let all that stuff go and keep moving forward with my life.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. I mean, I think the perk really—if anybody in the world out there has a narcissistic mother—it means you can write an amazing memoir. Eventually. <laughs> that is like the hallmark of a great story. So, anyway, at least you—at least you have that to mine in addition to other things. <laughs> and I felt like you did such a great job in the book of explaining the whole process of just how much it takes to adopt, to become a foster parent, all yeah. of the steps. Like, I feel like we all know this, right? It must be a lot of work, but. Right. the contrast of just like spontaneously basically having your own child and the hoops that you have to jump through in order to become a foster parent. And then finally an adoptive parent and all of the the decisions you had to make on the classes. And is this special needs child? Is this, is this my baby or is this not? And those painful decisions. What was it like having to go through all that? And tell me how you're Your resolve to do it just kept building the more you went through. I think it was definitely
1: nerve wracking at times and probably my saving grace. And this is what undergirds my resolve was just being very organized. So I was clear. So I knew I wanted to be a mom and that was okay. I I could cross that off my list. I was ready. And then I was, I'm a very organized person. So that definitely helped kind of keep me calm. And my best friend, she's an adoption social worker. And so I could certainly call her and talk with her, but you know, the process is what the process is. And I basically would just kind of talk to myself, like we're going to get through this, you know, I'm going to get to the other side of it. And as long as I remain focused on my goal, which was to adopt a little boy, and then later a little girl, then everything will be fine. And in the meantime, I just have to give the people what they're asking me for and just remain as flexible as I certainly could. But there's a lot. I mean, there's parenting classes, which were certainly invaluable. I enjoy those as well. I think those classes really sort of also took like that last sort of edge off of my relationship with my mother because I finally got, well, if my mom could have, if she could have done better, she would have, you know, I definitely believe that. And so that was very helpful. And then in preparation for the children who are in foster care, the kids are there typically for neglect and, and for abuse. You know, most parents are not looking at their child like, mm, I don't want you and I'm just going to toss you to the system. That typically does not happen. And I knew that any child I got was wanted and for whatever reason could remain with their family. So I I remained focused on that and that made it easier to get through. Oh, another set of forms that I need to complete. Oh, another psychological evaluation by the social worker. Oh, I have to go and get CPR certified. Okay, I can do this. Oh, my friends have to write letters of recommendation. Okay, I can do these things. And so
0: I just rolled with it because I knew it would end at some point. Another interesting element of your book is how you talk about race and gender, not just in terms of adoption, but in terms of how you feel about all of that. And one part was so interesting. Well, two parts really. One, the Clarence Thomas situation where you had to decide between, do I stand by a woman or do I stand by the idea of getting a Black man elected to the Supreme Court? And then again, when Obama was running against Hillary, do you know? Do you support? So tell me a little about that and how you felt like your allegiances as a feminist woman, essentially, and also a member of the Black race, who wants somebody else to be represented in front and center, how those like conflict and how you ended up deciding who to support and how to make up your mind about those things.
1: Yeah, that was, that was really a wild time. You know, 1991, I was coming out, I had just graduated and it was a recession and I remember I didn't have anything to do except watch the hearings, the confirmation hearings and being very concerned that, wow, if Black people miss an opportunity to have a Black person on the Supreme Court, like, we may never get this opportunity again. So I had, you know, reservations about Clarence Thomas. But at the time, I thought, okay, I got to vote my race. And so that's something that I think as, as Black men and women, no one ever says that, but it is implied through everything we learn, you know, Dr. King single-handedly did all of these amazing things. And it isn't until you become an adult and you do your own research where you learn, oh no, there's a whole army and typically of women, you know, behind these great men that we hear about who did all of this work. And so there's a lot of folklore within our community. And so I also didn't have a reason to doubt I need a hill. But again, I, you know, at that point, I'm I'm young and I'm thinking I got to put my race first. And so then, you know, fast forward a decade and some change and I had matured and I had way more life experience and I began to see things a lot differently. And so I was like, oh, okay, here's an opportunity to, you know, put my gender first and put my feminism and my thoughts about the world and equity, Mm -hmm. inclusion and things like that and so I went in like okay you know let's see what what Hillary has to say I'm open this sounds good you know woman president oh my god this would be fantastic and then as I learned more about you know then Senator Obama I was like oh okay well he and I have a lot in common he was also raised by grandparents I felt like I had a personal connection him. And I was opposed to the war on Iraq from the beginning. And so was he. And I I got a better understanding, a deeper understanding of who would get the privilege to represent me. And I wouldn't be blind anymore. And I wouldn't be taken for granted anymore. I wouldn't allow myself to be taken for granted anymore. And I would no longer make decisions solely based upon my race or my gender. I would do my homework. And that's definitely what I did. So it was a huge awakening for me. And it helped because I knew I wanted a little boy. And that was another question I got was, why would you want a little boy? You're a single woman. You know, you're educated. You've been places. You know things. You could really impart those lessons and fill a little girl. And that's what you should be doing. And that's the child that you should pursue. And I had, and all of those things were true. But at that point, and I still think I made the right decision. and I, I do have a daughter and that's a wonderful experience. I'm so happy to have her. But at that moment in 2006, I thought there's so much negativity around black males and I want to do this. This is my community service and this has nothing to do with Clarence Thomas and nothing to do with Obama. This is about me and about a woman being able to make a difference and this will cover everyone.
0: Amazing. I was also struck by, well, by so many things in your book, but as your son was getting older, how the men in the community felt like it was their duty to sort of take what you called their misogynistic views and sort of impart them on how soft he was getting that you had a child boy in Beverly Hills and what was going to become of him and you know, he should be doing this. And you had this whole section in the book where it was like, me, them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> which was like fantastic so here you are doing all this stuff to raise a black boy to become a black man in america and yet all the black men in america are like chastising you about one thing or another what what was that like for you it
1: was actually pretty funny they still tease me yeah, we're still friends and so oh my god they used to get on my case about how i dressed him how i was holding him and i should he put him down let him walk and He needs to toughen up and, you know, all of these things. And it's funny because he's still the same little kid. He is very tech driven and he's still very much into science and he's a sensitive child. still very intellectually curious. And so he's not that dude. He was never going to be that dude. And they were doing their best to make him into, I don't know what they thought they were going to do, but they were so funny. And so we laugh about
0: that. I feel like there's nothing more blatantly nature nurture than seeing a child who now you've adopted, right? And you can tell, like, kids come with their own programming. Like, they you can... Do. I I don't know. I have four kids. And as I've had more and more kids, I've realized the more kids I have, the least effect I feel like I have on them. (laughs) Like like they are who they are. And, you know, August was born the way he was and nobody, you know, a a fist bump instead of a a hug was not going to change who he was. So I feel like you have this unique point of view of, of what really it means to raise a child and how like sort of like humanity at its core. Yeah, they're so funny. I mean, you know, I I definitely wholeheartedly
1: agree boys need men. They absolutely need men in their lives and their conversations that a man can have with a boy because he used to be a boy. I certainly can't have. And I have no ego, you know, no issue saying, oh, you should talk with so-and-so about this because, you know, they were 12 or they were nine and and they can kind of walk you through these or they can role play when, you know, the kids tease each other back and forth. And so I'm like, oh, you should talk to Uncle So-and-so about that. Let them help you come up with some zingers that you can get your friends with. So, you know, we certainly need the men in our lives. And I'm grateful that we have a really great group of men that are still part of our lives that support all the kids. It's
0: so. amazing. So tell me a little more about writing this book. How long did it take? Where did you write it? How did you find the time to do it? How did you decide how to structure it? Like, tell me all the ins and outs, you know, in a couple minutes of how you ended up writing the book. Well, originally, I thought
1: I had a collection of essays. So I started writing about race and parenting and adoption in 2009. And so over time, I had slowly but surely amassed a fair number of articles. And so I thought, okay, I'll just expand on different topics. Like when you adopt a child, they suggest strongly that you not change the child's name you want to honor their identity so I changed both of my kids names and so I had a whole essay about you know names and naming within the black community religion was another something that I wrote about and I had an agent and we worked together for a couple of years but we ultimately parted ways because I don't know that she was necessarily comfortable with the racial aspect of what I was writing about. And I kind of felt like she was taking me away from that. And so she didn't understand that the whole point is that Black mothers are moms too, and we have experiences and we want to be part of the conversation, et cetera, et cetera. So then I got a new agent and we were on board with this collection of essays, and she says, I think you're going to have to make this a narrative. So I say, okay, great, I can do that. And she sells the book, and the first draft was 75,000 words, and it was super academic, and I was so proud of all of these discussions, intersectionality and racial hierarchies and motherhood and breaking down Murphy Brown and all these things. And the editor says to me, this is good. And, you know, this is great, but we need your story. And I know you are a private person, but you're going to have to tell us your story. You're going to have to share who you are. So the next version, and that was hard for me. I had to like, you know, kind of like, okay, okay, okay. But I, I was up for it. So the next version... I just laid everything out there. And then she said, Well, you don't have to tell everything. So I was like, Oh okay, God, thank you so much. So that's how it went from a very academic, you know, essay driven style book to what we have now, which is sort of a linear discussion of who I came to be, how I came to adopt.
0: How do you feel having been such a private person to then have your whole life story out into the world? Well, it's easier
1: with strangers because I'll never see them again, and most of the people I don't know, and that's great. It is scary. It it was scary when my friends and family read my book. More of my friends, less my family. That was definitely scary because they knew some things, but they didn't know everything. And so I did get a lot of text messages, a lot of phone calls. I didn't know that, you know, you never said anything. You know, you kept that to yourself. Why didn't you ever say anything? And you know, I didn't hold on to a lot of stuff. I just kind of kept it moving. And But I, I'm proud of the work I did. I'm proud of being honest. And I stand by what I wrote. And, you know, I'm okay with it. I feel like, you know, 10 years from now, five years, 15 years or what have you, it's nothing for me to be embarrassed about. So I'm proud of that.
0: Embarrassed? What are you talking? No, not at all. You should be super proud of this book. It was great. It was a really, a really great book. What do you have coming next? Like, would you want to write more? Are you writing more books? Are you going back to fiction? Like, tell me, what's your, what's your life plan these days?
1: Well, It's funny. I had a conversation with my agent this morning about that. We're just trying to figure out like next steps and what would make the most sense. I started on a book for children in foster care. I met a librarian last year and she asked me to write it. She's like, there aren't any books for children in foster care. And my experience as a foster parent was fairly limited because I got my children when they were babies, but I thought that was a great idea. And okay, so you mentioned having a narcissistic mother and how you could write a whole book on that. So that's actually going to be my next book. (laughs) So you, you, you guessed it, writing about mothers and daughters, and I was talking with her this morning just like, yeah, I, I could three or four pages worth, but she asked a great question. She's like, what is the story that you are afraid to tell? And that's such an interesting question, and I thought, oh, I can build
0: a book around that. So I think that'll be the next one. I cannot wait to read that book. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? I think
1: the best advice I can give is a writer does two things, you know, read and write. And that's super important. It's important to read books in the genre that you are interested in and to do your homework. So the other thing is if you have a vision, you have an idea for something to not get discouraged. I mean, as a writer, your work is going to get edited. People are not going to necessarily like what you write. So, you do have to be open to constructive criticism, but don't give up. If you have an idea, if it's important to you, I think you should write your story. And people get caught up in, oh my God, it's going to take 10 years, or I've been working on this book for 20 years. That's fine, it, it takes as long as it
0: takes. So true. A girlfriend of mine from college just texted me like an hour ago. She's wrote this romance novel with another friend of hers and it took them 10 years. And she's like, we finally got an offer on our romance novel. It's been such a journey. And I was like, that's what it's like. That's like what it's like for everybody. It's always such a journey. So just keep at it. Well, thank you TV thank you so much thanks for your amazing memoir Motherhood So White thought-provoking well-written researched awesome just really great I'm so glad I got to know you through the book and now in this venue so thanks for coming onto the Hey Mama Book Club thanks for Hey Mama Book Club for having me and thank you all for joining tonight so thanks well thanks for having me yeah, and I'll certainly check out your upcoming events awesome
1: <laughs> come on
0: Thanks again to today's sponsor, BookNix. Go to booknix.com. zibby 20 is the code to get 20% off of your middle grade subscription box. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.